Welcome to Unpacking Ideas, the podcast where each episode we take a look at a different piece of writing and unpack some of the major themes and ideas. This week we're taking a look at Letter to Menesius by Epicurus. Epicurus was an ancient Greek philosopher and founder of the Epicurean school in the 3rd and 4th centuries BCE. Today helping me unpack this letter was Daniel Libin. Because the letter was so short, we were actually able to read the whole thing on the podcast and go through it one section at a time. So that was a kind of cool format. And even though the letter was short, it was chock full of content. He really packed a lot in there, gave us a lot to talk about. We discussed Epicurus's thoughts on happiness, well-being, ataraxia, pain, pleasure, hedonic calculation, death, death anxiety, non-existence and whether or not logical arguments are effective at changing belief. This was a really fun conversation, a lot of fun talking to Daniel. We ate some donuts towards the end and had a good old time. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Daniel on Letter to Menesius. We met doing, uh, during COVID, we did... Uh, an online meetup group and we went through Bertrand Russell's history of Western philosophy. And I remember when we got to Epicurus, like your face lit up and you're like, Oh, like this is one of my guys. So I, rem- <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remembered that. And I was like, I had read this letter and I thought of you and I was like, Oh, Daniel would be perfect to do this with. Um, cool. So I'm excited. Me too. All right. So let's dive in. So here we go. Let I'm quoting now. Let no one delay the study of philosophy while young, nor weary of it when old. For no one is either too young or too old for the health of the soul. He who says either that the time for for philosophy has not yet come or that it has passed is like someone who says that the time for happiness has not yet come or that it has passed. Therefore, both young and old must philosophize the latter so that although old, he may stay young in good things owing to gratitude for what has occurred, the former so that although young, he too may be like an old man owing to his lack of fear of what is to come. Therefore, one must practice the things which produce happiness, since if that is present, we have everything, and if it is absent, we do everything in order to have it. All right. So I kind of gathered from that He's saying it's never too early or too late to study philosophy and that there are benefits for the old and the young alike. So the old, uh, according to Epicurus, it helps us to kind of reflect on different parts of our lives and to have an appreciation for them and like gratitude, I guess would be the word. And then for the young, I'm, I think he's kind of foreshadowing into what he's later going to get into. Uh, but I'm, I'm getting the sense he's saying uh, in this section, the former, although young, he too may be like the old man, owing to his lack of fear of what is to come. He's kind of saying there, if the young, a young person is to read philosophy, they can save themselves a lot of like, wor- like needless worry, essentially. Um, because as we'll get into later, Epicurus thinks that uh, we don't really need to spend all this time worrying about death. So that's one of the advantages to reading philosophy and studying it early in life versus later in life. 
because uh, if you just pick up Epicurus when you're, uh, you know, towards the end of your life, you might be like, oh, shit, I wish I would have had this information when I was like 10 or not 10. Maybe that's a little too early for Epicurus, but, you know, young as, as a young man or woman. Right. Um, and yet even as an older person, if you're picking it up, it then enables you to have appreciation and perspective for yeah. what went on before. Right, right. So what kind of philosophical, philosophical system would it be if it could only speak to the young or if mm. it only could speak to the old? No, he needs to speak to, to cater it to everybody. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not a complete system. Ah, uh, yeah. That's an, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't, had, I hadn't thought about it that way. So you're kind of saying... Um, it's for everyone. Yeah, it's for My everyone. My system's for everyone. Yeah. And if uh, this letter was going out in 300 BC, 307 mm. BC, um, he's advertising for his yeah. philosophical system as opposed to some of his competitors, mm. like Stoicism. Yeah. And other schools around that time. Totally. Yeah, I like thinking about that, you know, kind of looking at this opening paragraph almost as a little bit of a sales pitch. Yeah, he's, sales pitch. Because he he's not the only philosopher in town. Yeah, he's kind of selling like, oh, this is going to, like, my, come come subscribe to my philosophy. It's for, it's for everybody. It's for everyone. Yeah. yeah. It's very different than, like... Uh, Nietzsche or somebody who at the beginning of, I think, the Antichrist, he says, like, basically, this is for, like, the elite. <laughs> yes. It, uh, it, one of the, one, a book for free spirits. Is that, which one is that? Is that uh, Gay Science? Is, is that the one he calls a book? He subtitles it a, a, a book for free spirits. I'm mm. not sure if that's the one, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was kind exactly. of doing Nietzsche's the opposite. Nietzsche's a nice, a nice contrast. Actually, yeah. Nietzsche does have some things to say about Epicurus. Maybe, I don't know if that's maybe a separate topic um for this but but yeah this is this is the philosophical school for for everybody for everybody well and then the other idea i got from from this opening paragraph is in this last sentence he says therefore one must practice the things which produce happiness since if that is present we have everything and if it is absent we do everything in order to have it and uh, this was one of the things when we were trying to shoot our, our uh, first podcast, I brought up uh, a lyric by Kanye West. The lyric is having money is not everything, not having it is. So I think the idea there is, you know, money's not everything, but when you don't have money, it be, it envelops everything else you're doing. Like you, you, um, you basically become consumed by it. Yeah. And I got the sense that Epicurus is saying something similar here. Uh, he says, if it is absent, meaning happiness, uh, we do everything in order to have it. So when you're not happy, like your whole world becomes about, uh, you know, becoming happy. So. Well, yeah. if that's right, then, then, then maybe that there's. These, these philosophers, you know, this system is like, it's very individualistic. Mm. And so you're going to take of it what you need to do to produce your happiness. Yeah. So what is, the, so if Kanye West is, is right, what is that dollar figure mm. for each of us? Right, right. Now, there was some research. I think I brought this up last yeah. time. There was yeah. some research yeah. done about what constitutes, what is that monetary 
number income mm. in America today that is required for that happiness. Yeah. Like over a certain amount, you're not guaranteed any, to be any more happy. Any more happy. Right. But if you're... If you're below yeah. that number... Money does matter. And that and I think it was around 70. Around. 70,000. Yeah. I mean, this was, I don't, I, I, that's, that's what this research came up with. Right, right. Yeah, it's somewhere in that maybe ballpark. Maybe maybe if there's a place to uh, put the article up somewhere. Yeah, we in, can in post it. I can like this... post it in the yeah, show notes okay. or something. Okay. But I, I I know what you're talking about. Um, I think it might maybe I read it in Dan Gilbert's Stumbling on Happiness or something. But yeah, that idea that um, until you've reached a certain threshold of income, like there is a correlation between money and happiness. Right. But after that, like right. the you know billionaire isn't any more happy than the multimillionaire um or unha- per se. Or, unha- or, or unhappy <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> cool yeah. There, there was this um yeah the, the word um that was tr- the translation the way they translate it uh therefore one must practice the things which produce happiness mm. and i was wondering if that's really the 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 real the way that's the right word for that captures yeah. the Greek eudaimonia. Do you think that's yeah? Well, we should probably speak to about the translation we're using, which is the um, what's this is the, this is the uh, Brad and Wood and L.P. Gerson translation, the Hackett publication from yeah. 94, 1994. So yeah, yeah so you're saying like maybe another yeah, but translation know, I, I, might I, this, be this, this more modern translation. Pamela Mensch also uses happiness. They also use happiness. So yeah, but eudaimonia is is more the way I've translations I've heard of is more like well being. Mm. Whereas happiness might kind of like evoke like the emotion of joy or something. Whereas well being maybe is more like balanced and tranquil or is it yeah i think so i I don't yeah i mean you 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 know you've heard of people taking happy pills Mm, yeah but they don't take (laughs) well-being well-being pills no they don't right so not yet so um does well-being does does the term well-being give you a, a like a more rounded sense of something that's not as transitory as happiness but a more kind of a a a more permanent yeah state of being that one has put more effort into over the course of a lifetime to accomplish totally well yeah and in that like yeah happiness maybe can like evoke somebody like jumping in the air feeling happy or you know which has like more spikes i guess if we wanted to look at it as like a like on a line graph or something whereas well-being or uh flourishing is another word i've, I've heard for eudaimonia okay yeah flourishing this is you know. more of like a yeah a flat line you know maybe to, if, yeah. if a person right yeah i mean if a person is happy does that really give you the sense that they're flourishing in life i i, I don't know yeah. i mean I, I think that there's certain and maybe maybe i've come like i've parted a little bit from epicurean thought in some way i don't know that i don't know that that happiness really yeah. is 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 i mean is, is really right. anything. yeah I, I think there's a sense that meaning is is important yeah absolutely yeah and it'll be interesting too to see because a lot of these definitions like we'll get into pleasure and kind of what that means to epicurus it's going to be interesting if you know like 
some of these terms can can mean different things and like maybe what Epicurus means by happiness here includes something like meaning. That's also possible. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, sh- yeah. should we get into that a little bit now? I mean, I have some thoughts on that. Sure, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, might as well. It, what it, I don't think Epicurus says this. I think if, I mean, let's just, on the surface, he's just going for tranquility, the term ataraxia, which is lack of stress, really. Mm. But, um, but he doesn't say... He doesn't really give you, like, why. What's at the end of that journey? Mm. Like, what's the purpose of that? Yeah. It's like, it's, it's there for its own sake, right? Right, yeah, like, pleasure this is, is what, uh, and then, intrinsic, intrinsically good. Yeah, this is what you see um, uh, infants going for pleasure, and that's the most natural state. Yeah. I think that there's something behind that, though. I think that if, you've had, if you have a sense of eudaimonia, mm. uh, it means that you have things properly ordered in your life mm. and that you're, you're providing some sort of pro-social benefit as well. Ah, uh, okay. That your action, yeah. and, and that, and that the, the tranquility you get from Epicurus frees you, enables you to reach that other state. Mm, okay yeah which that like what you just said kind of ties into the kanye west thing so it's like if you if you are not kind of if you haven't reached that threshold of happiness your whole world is going to be consumed by by becoming happy essentially but once you have kind of reached that threshold or you know achieved ataraxia then you are able to concern yourself with like a lot more important things, essentially, like uh, maybe altruistic acts and whatnot. Yeah, I came across a similar idea uh, in a book called um, Transcendental Cinema. Okay, <laughs> this is a very far afield topic. No, yeah, I but love it. but it was uh, Paul Schrader, I think he wrote okay. that book. Yeah, and he was talking about the Japanese tea ceremony. Mm. It's how how meticulous. And detailed that ceremony is mm. all, all the procedures involved yeah and when you're engaged in those kinds of detailed oriented things it frees up the mind mm. okay yeah no i like that i like that you're no longer yeah. concerned about mundane things because that's all pre-programmed for you yeah that's very interesting that's very i've heard the same kind of things about like um like a lot of artists doing kind of a task that occupies their conscious mind so that their creative mind is able to like i think it was steven spielberg who would go on long drives on the highway so he's like you know Mm. doing something that's using some some of his attention but it's a very like low kind of primitive attention and he his mind is able to kind of wander and uh tap into this like higher power i guess yeah yeah that's cool should we uh, yeah. keep cracking? Sure. All right. You want to read this next, then this next section? Do and practice what I constantly told you to do, believing these to be the elements of living well. First, believe that God is an indestructible and blessed animal in accordance with the general conception of God commonly held, and do not ascribe to God anything foreign to his indestructibility or repugnant to his blessedness. Believe of him everything which is able to preserve his blessedness and indestructibility. For gods do exist, since we have clear knowledge of them. 
but they are not such as the many believe them to be, for they do not adhere to their own views about the gods. The man who denies the gods of the many is not impious, but rather he who ascribes to the gods the opinions of the many. For the pronouncements of the many about the gods are not basic grasps, but false suppositions. Hence come the great the greatest harm from the gods to bad men and the greatest benefits to the good. For the gods always welcome men who are like themselves, being congenial to their own virtues and considering that whatever is not such is uncongenial. Cool. Um, so this, I was a little unclear about sections of this. Do you want to kind of take the lead here? Well, the... the, the, the that last section mm-hmm. is is unclear, and in, in, even in this, um, that makes me feel better. <laughs> even, in this, um, even in this translation, I have by Pamela Mensch, she she refers to this area as being, in the footnote, she writes, "quote an obscure and possibly corrupt passage." <laughs> okay, okay. So we'll kind of keep so that. In we mind keep that in mind as we're going through this. But what he's. Um, what he's trying to do is calm people down mm. about the gods. Yeah, 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 yeah. If whatever religious attitude people had at that point were making people freak out about the gods. Or like what would happen to them in the afterlife. Anything like that. Yeah. He's telling them, you know. Chill. Relax be... about that. Yeah. They're there. I'm not challenging. Yeah. You know, established belief and right. opinion that there aren't gods. I'm not. You know, he's saying I'm not an atheist here. Yeah, as there were at the time. Mm-hmm. But don't think that they're that they're that they have that they're really concerned about you. Yeah, in a and they're going to do some and that there's some harm awaits for you and you don't have to be worried about them. Gotcha. Okay. Which that, yeah, that um, connects with other things I have read about Epicurus is, you know, he believed there were gods, but they were off doing more important things than concerning themselves with the, you know, human affairs. Yes. So there, I mean, there, there has been recent debate when I say recent in the past 30, 40 years mm-hmm. about whether Epicurus was an atheist or whether, mm-hmm. or what, or, or whether he did believe in the gods. Yeah. Or what and what he's real what he's really doing here, mm-hmm. and at the bare minimum we can say that he's trying to relax people about yeah. whatever threat there might be. Like, don't right. worry about the gods in that sense. Which kind of taps into his philosophy too. Like one of the major things I think that he thought took people out of this uh, tranquil state was fear and anxiety. And one of the things that he thought people had the most fear about was, uh, well, death, which we'll get into in a minute, and, like, the gods, and essentially, like, what the gods will do to them in the afterlife. Um, so, yeah, yeah this, that's, that's kind of more or less what I got from this passage as well. Yeah. Um, if, yes, yeah, so if you're going to start, if you want to make people more relaxed and tranquil in life, you have to start with their conceptions of, of God. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Cool. Let's, uh, let's talk about death. (laughs) All right. Quote, get used to believing that death is nothing to us. 
For all good and bad consists in sense experience, and death is the privation of sense experience. Hence, a correct knowledge of the fact that death is nothing to us makes the mortality of life a matter for contentment, not by adding a limitless time to life, but by removing the longing for immortality. For there is nothing fearful in life for one who has grasped that there is nothing fearful in the absence of life. Thus, he is a fool who says that he fears death, not because it will be painful when present, but because it will be painful when it is still to come. For that which while present causes no distress, causes unnecessary pain when merely anticipated. So death, the most frightening of bad things, is nothing to us. Since when we exist, death is not yet present, and when death is present, then we do not exist. Therefore, it is relevant neither to the living nor the dead, since it does not affect the former, and the latter does not exist. Uh, but the many sometimes flee death as the greatest of bad things, and sometimes choose it as a relief from the bad things in life. All right, so there's a lot, a lot in there. And, he's, last time yeah. we, we, we got into this, whether logic is... He's trying to create a logical argument, yeah. like a syllogism as, as to why you shouldn't be worried yeah, about, why, about death. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's his goal, to use logic and reason to relieve fear and anxiety. Um, and basically, yeah, the, the argument in its simplest form is when you're alive, death is not present, so you don't need to worry about it. And when you're dead, you're no longer present. Like you, there's no longer a you. You no longer exist. So there's no there's no one for death to be bad for. Um, so it's a pretty straightforward argument. Um, and yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about. So I'm curious two two different things. I mean, f- for one. There, you know, certain people uh, have issue with that argument. So we can talk about whether that argument kind of holds up. And then the other thing we can talk about, which we got into a little bit last time, was even if this argument holds up, does it do what he wants it to do, which is relieve the the fear of death? Um, so maybe starting with the, the latter... Um, one thing I brought up last time, we um, so there's this concept. I believe Tam uh, Tamler Gendler, Tamar Gendler, philosopher, has this idea. Um, it's called a leaf. So her idea is we have certain beliefs about certain things, which are things that we, you know, rationally, consciously believe. But then we also have a leafs, which are more like emotional emotional more instinctual more primitive that and that these two things can be existing at the same time so the best way that i can think to understand it in new york city there is something uh a new building that just went up this observation tower called the edge i believe in hudson yards and what's cool about it is you know it's on top of the skyscraper and the floor is completely see-through. I'm not sure. It's probably not glass, but it's made of some material that like when you step on it, you're just staring straight down, you know, hundreds, thousands of feet. So 
what's interesting is for somebody to go up there, they must have a belief that it is safe to go up here and to walk on it. They must trust at some level the architect and, you know, they, they're carrying around this conscious belief. But at the same time, a lot of people, when they get up there, their hands, their palms will start to sweat. Uh, they might even chicken out and be like, no, nah, I'm not going on that. So it's very interesting that even though they can kind of rationally believe something, it still isn't powerful enough to override their kind of instinctual fear of, you know, being up that high in the sky. So I think in, like a similar thing could be drawn to this argument. And this is kind of, at least for me or experientially, I've felt with this argument is that like, even though I can kind of wrap my head around what he's saying, okay, well, once you die, like you're going to be dead. So you're not going to be there. You don't have anything to worry about. That maybe relieves my death anxiety a little bit, but I feel like I still have a bit of this like a leaf left over, which is like, yeah, but it's still really freaking scary to think about, um, you know, non-existence, even though I rationally know I'm not going to be there to experience like, you know, an infinite time of nothingness. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm curious what, what you think about that idea and how it relates to this argument. Yeah, my, my concern about the argument is that it's it's not going to work on everybody. Yeah. And you mean uh, you're concerned with Epicurus' yeah. argument? Yeah. 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 Like, um, and I don't know that any argument can work. Any, I don't think any argument that's based solely on logic and, and yeah. even common sense mm -hmm. or experience is going to work yeah. for everybody. Which is why Aristotle talked about the three parts of, of making an argument. Mm. One of them is logos, which is logic. Ah, uh, yeah. The other one is, is pathos, which is yet to, to appeal to the, to the emotions and mm. feelings. The third one being yeah. ethos, which is how convincing the, the speaker is. That's a great point to bring up, yeah. So, um, so this, this, is, this, this obvious argument is very heavy on the logic part of it. Uh, so, however, it will help many people. Yeah. You know, and you, you see in this kind of argument, um, therapeutic techniques that are used today in what's in cognitive behavioral therapy, mm. CBT. Yeah. The founder actually, um, used Epictetus. Ah, okay. I shouldn't bring that yeah. up in an Epicurean talk, but but yeah. but, but, but yeah. he used Stoic principles when he developed mm. cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, forget the guy's name. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know who you're talking about. It's um, I'm just blanking on his name. Ellis. Albert yeah, Ellis. Albert Ellis. Yeah, yeah. He wrote a book called "Guided for Rational Living." Mm. Yeah, and he openly acknowledges that he drew from Epictetus. Oh, cool. N yeah. Nonetheless, yeah. I mean, the Stoic, Epicurean, whatever. There's there are certain things they have in common. Yeah, and and and, and this, this you know this is a very much a CBT attitude right here. Totally. Well, and I was actually when you said that I was thinking of a CBT exercise I've done in the past, which is basically you take something that you're afraid of, afraid to do. It's a kind of exposure therapy uh, exercise. So say this is like I'm petrified of snakes. So what what they have you do in this exercise is 
write down on a scale of one to 10, how scary you think it will be uh, to say in this example, go into a room with a Cobra. And then they have you then rate right after you do it, how scary it actually was. And I had some experience with this, not with going to rooms with snakes, but with like doing, you know, small things like giving a stranger a compliment or something um, where I noticed, and I don't think I'm unique that almost always my anticipated um, like how, how much I, how scary I thought it would be was always way higher than how scary it actually was. Um, So, and I think Epicurus would probably say, well, the same is true with death. Like that fear that we have around death and dying and how scary or bad we think it really will be. Um, if we were to rate it on a scale of one to 10, it wouldn't come like once we died or, you know, as we were dying, say, if we were to write that number again, um, I don't think it would be nearly as high. And there have also been like, you know, a lot of people and actually Michelle de Montaigne in one of his essays had a near death experience and he talked about the horse, the process of dying and how it was actually this like very pleasant experience. And I've heard, you know, other kind of anecdotes where people talk about death in the same way, or at least the process of dying in the same way. Is that like kind of almost to say like, oh, all that worry was for nothing that like the process was very easy. And like, I kind of knew what to do. Mm. So a lot of that worry is unwarranted. So this, this ties into, um, Another issue, which is, are we afraid of death? Or should he be talking about the pain associated to, to the dying? Pain, the, 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 the pain preceding, that right. precedes many deaths. Well, and here he's talking about death. The death, right. Yeah. But I think if you, if you push people. On what, what they're actually what, afraid right. of. It's they're, usually not the process they, of dying. They're going to they're talk about well, I just don't want to feel pain. You know, mm. I'm afraid of like, the, you know, the pain before death, you know? And he, he talks about pain as well. Oh, interesting. But, Epi- but Epicurus yeah. died of, of, it's reported that he died of kidney stones, mm. which is just apparently rough. really, really yeah. painful. But that he had tranquility nonetheless. Yeah. Now, of course, you're going to say that about <laughs> Yeah. All, if you're, if you're an ancient philosopher, the, like, that's one of the prerequisites is like being super chill about death <laughs> socrates and seneca and I'm like, yeah, yeah right yeah. right yeah. that's that's interesting you say that because my intuition is kind of different and maybe that's just because my bias i tend to not be super freaked out about the process of dying or like the pain of dying but the idea of non-existence is the thing i can even remember like being a little kid when it first clicked in and coming into my parents room and just like how long is forever? And like, you know, they could, they could tell that, that, that idea of, um, non-existence kind of clicked in. And I know for me, that's kind of the thing that, that freaked me out. So I know, at least personally, this argument, although maybe it doesn't get me all the way there in terms of relieving death anxiety, uh, 
like maybe I still have a little bit of that a leaf hanging on. It does help a bit. It does help. Yeah. And I think Epicurus would say if you train yourself mm-hmm. enough, you yeah. could you could even reduce that even further. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, maybe we could talk about also. So we've been speaking as if this argument is sound. We totally buy it. What are, you know, the ramifications? Now, maybe we could talk about some of the maybe more popular counter arguments to uh, Epicurus. And we don't have to spend too much time on it, but um, I think the probably the more com- the most common one that comes up and that Thomas Nagel brings up in his piece, uh, I think it's just titled Death, is that essentially death is bad because it is robbing a person of life. It is robbing that person had potential to keep living. And that's the reason that we should fear death is because, you know, essentially it's bad because uh, that person is not going to have the uh, privilege of, you know, living however much longer they would have lived if they hadn't died. Um, he says, yeah. what, what, he, what, what Epicurus says is actually different. Nagel has a very different take of it. For all, he write, Epicurus writes, for all good and bad consists in sense experience, and death is the privation of sex. Death is the priven, privation of sense experience. Right. So I think Nagel would just widen that and say it's not all about sense experience. No, I think no. Maybe I thought the Nagel reverse. said the whole the whole point is that sense experience is good. Sense experience is the whole thing. That's mm. the that's the goodness of life. The sense experience. Uh, I don't okay. agree with yeah. Nagel at all. Yeah. Okay. But but I think that's, I think I think that's what. What, what, what was the well, name? Can of I the, could I maybe read yeah. the yeah. So that's that's where I got out of it. But um, what was what's the name of the article? It, it's just called Death. Right. It's an essay from uh, Mortal Questions by Thomas Nagel. I believe it's from the in the seventies. So the way he kind of gets there is through a thought experiment, which I, I thought was was interesting. So he says, suppose an intelligent person receives a brain injury that reduces him to the mental condition of a contented infant. Such a development would be widely regarded as a severe misfortune, not only for his friends and relation and relations of the society, but also and primarily for the person himself. Uh, the intelligent adult who had been reduced to this condition is the subject of the misfortune. He is the one we pity, though of course he does not mind the condition. He does saying he does not mind the condition now that he is in this. Uh, you know, paralyzed state. Quote, the view that such a man has suffered a misfortune is open to the same objections which have been raised in regard to death. He does not mind his condition. It is, in fact, the same condition he was in at the age of three months. Um, so who is there to pity? The intelligent adult has disappeared, and for a creature like the one before us, happiness consists in a full stomach and a dry diaper. Um, and then this is later, he says, if instead of concentrating exclusively on the oversized baby before us, we consider the person he was and the person he could be now, then his reduction to the state of the cancellation of his natural adult development consists of a perfectly intelligible catastrophe. So I think what he's saying there is, 
all right, so if we just say, you know, we'll, we'll use me as an example. We'll see me today, you know, uh, functioning adult tomorrow, you know, say on the way home, you know, I fall off my bike and I injure my brain and I'm reduced to the state where I'm basically have the intelligence of like a three-year-old. And so even if tomorrow I wake up and I'm, I'm still super happy. It's just that now the things that make me happy are like in his words, having a clean diaper and, you know, a bottle to suck on. Um, Nagel would say, well, that's still, it's still bad. It was still bad for me because there's all this kind of potential that was lost. Whereas I think what he's saying is Epicurus would probably argue, well, there's really no harm because that this new person that I have become this, you know, person who now has the intellect of a three-year-old, they are now just maybe want different things and are now happy. They're still happy. So it's still, it's still good. So I got the sense that he's, yeah, he's kind of saying we should consider, and, and he actually does say this later. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, quote, when a man dies, we are left with his corpse And while a corpse can suffer the kind of mishap that may occur to an article of furniture, it is not a suitable object for pity. The man, however, is. He has lost his life, and if he had not died, he would have continued to live it and to possess whatever good there is in living. Right. So he he would say that all death is, is terrible. Yeah, for everybody. That's kind of what he's arguing. Well, he is. And he says, like, in fact, even if you live to 100... It's not long enough. It's, yeah, it's, it's still terrible because you're still deprived of sense perception. You're still de- deprived of potential life that, at least in theory, you could live. And I think that's what most people's intuitive objection to uh, Epicurus would be. was like, well, death is, you know, like you, this person got shot and killed. Um, and the reason that's bad is you know, they were, I don't know, like a young man and they had their whole life ahead of them. So you're depriving that person of all that life. And that is why it's bad for that person. Epicurus's uh, right. response is, first of all, he takes it as a given that death is going to come to everybody. Yeah. And why is he, why is he doing that? Because he's more concerned than Nagel is apparently with a practical get through existence system. He's trying to he's sure. trying to be therapeutic and help people out. Yeah, and so it, it, to, to you know to posit that uh, it's un, it's a terrible thing that we're all going to be dying at some point. Well, of course we are. Yeah. So let's just deal with the fact that we are. Right. And, and that, uh, but here's why there's no reason to worry about it. Right. Right. It's nothing. Death is nothing to us. He says. So according to Epicurus, it doesn't it doesn't matter if if you die. At any age, at any point, because it's... It's coming anyway. It's coming anyway, and it's nothing to us. It means nothing to us. Right. Yeah, which, I, I don't know. I think that's that's something that can be hard to... Because we have this idea that, like, potential is a real thing. At least in, like, in the sense that Nagel is talking about it. In the sense that, like, oh, that person had their whole life ahead of them, and they were robbed of this. Um, but Epicurus would say like, well, there's nobody to be robbed of it because they're no longer, 
they no longer exist, essentially. Yeah. Okay. How are you yeah. robbed of something if you're dead? Right. But it does go against our, our intuitions, right? I mean, the, at least I can speak personally. My intuition, and this is actually a true story, I was uh, you know, working at Barnes & Noble, and this guy came in, and he said that his six-year-old daughter his six-year-old daughter's best friend at school just died in the Bronx fire. Hmm. And it was just like, oh my gosh. And he wanted to get her a book to like basically learn about death, like a, a children's book that kind of talked about, um, you know, that was like in story form that basically introduced the concept of death. Hmm. Anyways, my point of the story is my, I, I think the reason that story was so, terrible not that death is easy to whoever happens but when it happens to like a six-year-old who has kind of right at the beginning of their life there's something that's at least uh there's something there that's like that triggers that response of like oh man like she had her whole life ahead of her like she was robbed of all of this potential um and i think that's the argument nagel is making that there there is kind of a um, something bad happening. Death is bad for that person because of the uh, life that is robbed from them. Where again, Epicurus would say, "Well, they're they're dead, so there's no there's no one for it to be bad for." Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. Right. Um, so it's important yeah. to keep in mind that that's that that that. Uh, perception mm. is says more about us and our and our attitude towards what happened to the, to the girl yeah than than her status as someone who as someone who is no longer exists totally yeah right and and we should also mention too that epicurus is speaking strictly about the person who died he's not saying death is not bad for um you know like loved ones of that person who are now grieving. Absolutely, of course. So we should clarify right. that. He's talking right. he's talking specifically about right. the individual. The individual. Right. Yeah. Right. Um cool. Was there anything I know that that was like a big a big section, but I think it's good that we dive deep into it. Was there anything else in that section before we move on? No, I think I think we can okay. move forward. Cool. Where, where did you leave off? Uh, uh you read it to one twenty six? Yeah. But the wise man neither rejects life nor fears death. For living does not offend him, nor does he believe not living to be something bad. And just as he does not unconditionally choose the largest amount of food, but the most pleasant food, so he savors not the longest time, but the most pleasant. He who advises the young man to live well and the old man to die well is simple-minded, not just because of the pleasing aspects of life, but because the same kind of practice produces a good life and a good death. Much worse is he who says that it is good not to be born, but when born, to pass through the gates of Hades as quickly as possible. For if he really believes what he says, why doesn't he leave life? For it is easy for him to do, if he has firmly decided on it. But if he is joking, he is wasting his time among men who don't welcome it. We must remember 
that what will happen is neither unconditionally within our power nor unconditionally outside our power, so that we will not unconditionally expect that it will occur, nor despair of it as unconditionally not going to occur. Cool. So, yeah, there's a lot in there, too. Um, maybe since we're still kind of speaking a little bit about death and whether or not it's it's uh, bad or you know is is or isn't nothing to us we can talk about he says here um much worse is he who says that it is it is not good to be born but when born to pass through the gates of hades as quickly as possible and he says for if he really believes what he says why doesn't he leave life so he's got to make making the argument here if you're somebody who says it's better to have never existed than like basically why don't you commit suicide um if if that's what you truly believe then why don't you commit suicide um and we're each we and we're probably thinking the same thing i am there's there's actually a, a philosopher david benatar who has a book called never to have been is that what it, what it is never to have been yeah yeah I think the subtitle better, better never to have been better never to have been. Yeah. It's a good book to read on the subway. If you don't want anybody to talk to you. (laughs) 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 Um, But, but he makes the argument that it is better to have never been. It's better to never have come into existence. uh, Just in a nutshell, his argument, because basically the, the cons outweigh the pros. That's a very simplified way of putting it, but that's basically his argument. But when pressed for, you know, when people say, well, then, uh, if you believe that, why don't you commit suicide? Or why don't you think that homicide is justifiable if you believe that? He says that though that is better to come into existence, that is better to not come into existence, that if you are already in existence, you have an interest in remaining alive. Yeah, that's Benatar. Yeah, that's Benatar. And I think. I think there's some compatible, over, you know, there's some overlap between Epicurus yeah. and him. Yeah. Right? Because he's saying, um, much worse is he who says that it is good not to be born. Well, you can say that, but then, but then he goes on and says, but when born to pass through the gates of Hades as quickly as possible. Benatar would, 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 would agree with that sentiment of, like, don't want to met, that doesn't mean that you should go commit suicide right exactly yeah so so yeah and i mean i I mean so epicurus is pro pro pro-life here it sounds kind of nietzschean yeah i think the question of whether he's uh antinatalist or not is not really addressed here and maybe we can define antinatalist Antinatalist is the idea that it's better not to procreate yeah there's a different passage where Mm. epicurus says the wise man will not have children it's not in this letter and is he saying the wise man will not have children because it is uh better to have never come into existence i i i I, I don't think it um he doesn't go that it doesn't go that okay he doesn't say why and there is some controversy actually yeah as to how to translate that because of some some, corruption in the text yeah in the original papyrus text or whatever wherever however this came down so that the hackett publication the inwood gerson translates the wise man will 
have children. Oh, okay. Wow. Other translations, this men, the Pamela Mensch translation and other translations I've read, and most of the scholarly opinion just <laughs> yeah. says, no, it, 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 it makes sense to read that passage. Mm. The wise man will not have children. Okay. Will not, and also will not marry, I believe. It gotcha. As, as well. Gotcha. But, um, which would be antinatalism. Yeah. Because he's, he's saying, well, he's saying the wise man. He's not. He's he's advocating. If you're a wise person, this is what you should. This is, this you is should the right do. way. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it's a nuanced, yeah, caveat-filled position of antinatalism. I don't. It's not really clear. Yeah. Well, and but, I think, but, but, he's, but he does say that you know, better not to. Yeah, and I think it holds up also with our intuitions that, you know, it's it's bad to kill somebody and end their life, but it's not necessarily bad to not have children. Like most people aren't going to look at that as like, Oh, you are robbing some unborn child of the, you know, opportunity to come into life. Like that's not a, I don't think that's an uh, intuition. Most people hold. Whereas, you know, there, there is an intuition that if you, you know, kill somebody, you're, you're robbing them of continued existence. Now, what would Nagel say about, I, I don't know what Nagel well, let's, let's, yeah. let's, let's, yeah. let's, let's, let's piece it out. Yeah. If he thinks life is wonderful and that death I, is terrible and that you're depriving someone of sense experience and, and of life yeah. experience and that's a bad thing, well, then what are you, what, so then if you don't have children, think of all the deprivation of all that wonderful stuff. <laughs> life, yeah. You should be having <laughs> Every, as many children as possible. <laughs> we shouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah. We should be out there. Yeah. Yeah. We should be out yeah, there you know, uh, procreating. Whatever we have to do. Yeah. No, I, I think he actually, now that we mentioned, I think he does talk about that. Um, Nag- Nagel? Nagel. There, there is a passage where he talks about something along the lines of like, you you would say death is bad because you're depriving somebody of life, but you wouldn't say like, oh, if I had only been born sooner, I could have, uh, you know you know, oh, I was so deprived because I was not like an early um, pregnancy. Right. right, but that's, but that's, you can't, certain things you can't control. Yeah, right. But I'm just saying, you know, it seems to me like it's like a, the logical conclusion of Nagel's. Sure, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I will have to go back and reread that section because I want to say he addresses it, but I'm not exactly sure. He, Nagel is just yeah. way, so life-affirming. It seems yeah. to me mm-hmm. that he would be like, you know, have as many kids as possible, um, unless unless there's some other argument. Well, in, it seems to me then like Epicurus is somewhere in the middle of Nagel and uh, David Benatar, who we mentioned. Whereas Epicurus is, he seems a life affirming as well, but maybe just not to the degree that. Uh, because there were some pa- this passage here what does he say um um here we go he says the wise man neither rejects life nor fears death for the living does not offend him nor does he believe that not living is uh something to be bad right but but yeah. that but that not living i don't know right and i thought about that i don't think the not living means um the not living of not coming into existence Mm, I think the yeah. not living means De- the post mortem yeah. situation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. The 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 um, but you know, 
maybe it's a separate topic to get into that antinatalism attitude that he discusses in another passage. It's not it's not it's not in these three letters. So it's not it's not in the main Okay. What's considered the main body of his of Epicurean thought. It's like one of these ancillary Gotcha. Thing. Well maybe maybe for now we can kinda of keep plugging through. Absolutely. If it comes yeah, back yeah, yeah, up. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I don't mean okay. to dwell yeah. on it. Cool. Well let's uh let's keep cracking. So here we go. Quote, one must reckon that of desires, some are natural, some groundless, and of the natural desires, some are necessary and some merely natural, and of the necessary, some are necessary for happiness, and some for freeing the body from troubles, and some for life itself. The unwavering contemplation of these enables uh, these enables one to refer every choice and avoidance to the health of the body and the freedom of the soul from disturbance, since this is the goal of a blessed life. For we do everything for the sake of being neither in pain nor in terror. As soon as we achieve this state, every storm in the soul is dispelled. Since the animal is not in a position to go after some need nor to seek something else to complete the good of the body and the soul. For we are in need of pleasure only when we are in pain because of the absence of pleasure. And, and when we are not in pain, then we no longer need pleasure. And this is why we say that pleasure is the starting point and goal of living blessedly. This is one of the key passages yeah. in all of Epicurus. This, yeah. This is so this, he really I mean, kind of gets into it. And this is, and I, and he doesn't use the word, he doesn't use words like, um, happiness here. Right. Yeah. He's mostly talking about pleasure. He's freedom of dis- freedom of the soul from disturbance, mm-hmm. which is ataraxia. And he says that's the, the goal of life. So I like I yeah. So when I so when you're talking about Epicure, Epicurean thought, people use the word tranquility, but it really should be ataraxia. It really should be a mm-hmm. term that captures the negative aspect of it. Lack of. Ah, uh, yeah. The negation of stress. Mm. Yeah. When you have, when you don't have stress, what are you left with? Right. That's the, that's the good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's similar to, I can't help but thinking of like Buddhism with a lot of this. Um, it, they seem to be, they seem to be similar and that he's, yeah, he's basically saying, well, once the the pain is gone, then there's no real reason to like uh, strive after anything. Anything. Yeah, we don't need pleasure. Right. All we need is all we need is absence of pain. And so, would you say? Because I was trying to think about how this maybe relates to or differs from Buddhism. Would you say in Epicurean thought, the goal is, and this is posed as a question rather than a statement, would you say that the goal is to uh, reach a state where you are no longer feeling any displeasure? You're, you're both mentally and physically, emotionally, you know, whatever, you're, you've reached that state. Whereas maybe in Buddhism, the goal is to get to the point that even though you are feeling this displeasure, you are not perturbed by it or you are accepting of it. 
I don't know enough about Buddhism. Okay. Because I, I, it's... It, yeah, I, I don't... Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot, at least the 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 kind of Buddhism that I've uh, studied, there's, you know, there there's a ter- tendency to um, discourage, like, clinging. So, like, you know, say you've just finished that piece of cake and you want it to continue, but, like, there's now a loss of it or even like clinging would could be like you know your someone in your family has died and you are suffering now because you're mm. clinging to that so there's this wanting to keep what is good that good feeling going or desire um or no i guess that would be the same so it's basically like clinging to what is good and trying to avoid what is bad so and those are the things that I think the Buddha sees as causing suffering, which is similar to Epicurus, but it seems like maybe there's a different way. It seems like Epicurean is trying to get you to the state where you are just inherently having less of those desires because you're just more sustained and fulfilled. Whereas Buddhism maybe is less about trying to reach that state and just getting to a state where you're less kind of perturbed by those desires does that make sense the distinction yes maybe 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 the distinction is sharply like observed if you if 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 i asked you like what is the method that you're supposed to do Mm -hmm. that in buddhism yeah 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 like i can say in epicureanism you're you are um the wise person in in Epicureanism is constantly confronting the hedonic calculus, mm. meaning every choice of every moment of the day, whether you're aware of it or not, is going into calculating where this, where such and such activity is going to bring you, is going to maximize your, your, your ataraxia. Right. If I do this, is going to create more problems for me. Is it going mm-hmm. to disturb me? So yeah. so this is this is a, it's a kind of a practical way of thinking through choices, and that's how you right. would, that's how you would achieve that. Now, how, now in Buddhism, I can imagine other methods of doing it. I think it's yeah, it's less a focus on that and more of a focus on like observing those desires happening within yourself and kind of. Uh, like an acceptance or not even an acceptance, but just like observing them and by observing them, a lot of times they naturally will This will sounds go like, away. it sounds like it's done through meditation. Yeah. Yeah. Meditation, or even if it's not like a sitting meditation, just like a, you know, a, a form of consciousness, a form of uh, yeah, reflection. Yeah. Mindfulness. Yeah. Like, mindfulness. Yeah. No, I'm just curious. And I, and I didn't mean to like get off too much on a tangent on Buddhism. I but think I'm it's curious. Important. I think, yeah, it's, I think I'm curious, it's but Yeah. I'm curious how, relates to and differs from this whereas well, like if and we could use epicurus who had these like terrible kidney stones um what would his response be to that kind of uh pain and like lack of tranquility because it seems it's like a different it's a different attitude than buddhism yeah right because he's saying for we are in need of pleasure only when uh, only when we are in pain, yeah, because of the absence of pleasure. Well, that means we have to take an active role 
Right. And seeking out pleasure to dispel the pain. Right. Maybe, so maybe these Buddhist techniques will work. Yeah. But that is a little more esoteric. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's consistent with Epicureanism. Whatever works will work. You know, if, if, if it brings you pleasure. But sure, maybe he's saying that, you know, that may not work for everybody. Yeah. Just go for the pleasure and decide for yourself mm. what that is. It's problematic, though. What happens if that pleasure is something destructive? Yeah. So you have to have some kind of awareness and wisdom in knowing what actually is ultimately pleasurable and what ultimately is healthy for you. Mm. And he does talk about, I don't know if he talks about it in this letter or elsewhere. He does definitely, he, 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 he might do it. Yes, he does. I think in, we're about in to In the get next to section. It. Let's do read the next section because yeah. I, I, I yeah. think uh, it leads it into yes. that well. All right. So, uh, so you got until, and this is why we say the pleasure is a starting point and the goal of the living blessedly. That's where you left off. Yeah. So 129 starts, for we recognized this as our first innate good, and this is our starting point for every choice and avoidance, and we come to this by judging every good by the criterion of feeling. And it is just because this is the first innate good that we do not choose every pleasure. But sometimes we pass up many pleasures when we get a larger amount of what is uncongenial from them. And we believe many pains to be better than pleasures when a greater pleasure follows for a long while if we endure the pains. So every, every pleasure is a good thing since it has a nat nature congenial to us. But not everyone is to be chosen. Just as every pain too is a bad thing, but not everyone is such as to be always avoided. It is, however, appropriate to make all these decisions by comparative measurement. That's what I called the hedonic calculus earlier. Mm -hmm. And an examination of the advantages and disadvantages. For at some times, we treat the good thing as bad, and conversely, the bad thing is good. Yeah. So this is kind of what distinguishes uh, Epicureanism from hedonism. Because Epicurus is not saying pleasure is good, so just, you know, eat a bunch of, like, you know, unhealthy food and have a bunch of sex and party and do everything that will give you instant pleasure and gratification. He's saying, although all pleasure is good and all pain is bad, sometimes when you're doing this calculation, it makes sense to do something that is painful in, you know, in the present or in the, you know, immediate in order to gain a larger pleasure down the road, which this is like, you know, going on a diet, like it's worth, you know, not eating the cake because, uh, though, you know, I'm not going to have this immediate pleasure. I'm going to have the pleasure of like looking and feeling great and, uh, you know, living well, a longer life and you know, that, all the other great example, all that benefits. Yeah, exercising, yeah strenuous activity mm -hmm. uh why do i put myself through this you know and then you know because later on it's going to have a great benefit a greater pleasure yeah so that's why yeah that's why this isn't just like pure hedonism oh pleasure is good that means eat all the cake like no there's you're still doing that calculation one thing i wanted to mention that i thought was interesting 
is he says, so every pleasure is a good thing. Yeah. Um, and every pain is a bad thing. So he's not saying what I think is interesting there is he's not saying like, um, maybe we can use like, like, uh, eating broccoli. So you get like kid really hates broccoli and like has to suffer it down. He's not saying like that suffering is good. He's still saying that suffering is bad. That suffering is still pain, but they are going to get a greater pleasure, which is, you know, to be, be healthy in the long run, which I think that's interesting because it differs a little bit with some other thinkers. Maybe I was thinking kind of like Nietzsche who seems to celebrate the, the pain and almost sees like the struggle as being like a good in itself. Whereas Epicurus is saying like, no, the pain is still bad. It's just that like you need to, uh, you need to, you know, embrace some bad in order to get the good later. Whereas, you know what I'm, I'm saying? Yeah, is no, it, I know what you're saying. Like, I, I think, but I think we can have a, yeah. a, a, a nice, uh, big division between the two when we ask what the purpose is for each of them. Yeah. Okay. Is, is the purpose of, (laughs) actually there are some, there are, there are case points where Nietzsche has good things to say about Epicurus, Mm. but there are things that he says, uh, they're really not so great about Epicurus. (laughs) Not so nice. Like like, why, like Epicurus says, you know, you're trying to create tranquility at ataraxia, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, avoidance of, uh, of stress in your life. It's totally un-Nietzschean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, for the most part, right? Sure. Nietzsche, Nietzsche says a lot of stuff, but for the most part, that's not a Nietzschean concept at all. It's like mm. the opposite of what Nietzsche, Nietzsche would say that, that there's, that there, like you said, about, about struggle. Yeah, and it's kind of an there's emphasis. There's something to come out of struggle. Right, and it's kind of an emphasis, too, on like, it seems like Epicurus still here is focused about the end result. Like, the end result will be better if you suffer this temporary pain. Whereas... And maybe not to just pick on Nietzsche. I know like Camus has the, that idea of like, um, like uh, the uh, myth of Sisyphus, like being the person who carries a boulder. So in the myth of Sisyphus, Sisyphus is the Greek figure who for eternity just carries his giant boulder up a hill. And then as soon as he gets to the top of the hill, the, the boulder rolls down and then he, and the, you know, the metaphor is that's kind of what life is, <laughs> you know, just one struggle after another. And at least Camus says, well, that means we should find joy in the suffering and that, uh, it's not ultimately about the pleasure of reaching the top. Whereas here I'm kind of getting the sense that Epicurus and correct me, I, cause I'm curious how you read this, but I'm, I'm getting the sense that Epicurus is kind of saying, well, like that pain, that struggle, it's still bad because it's pain, but it's worth it because we get this greater pleasure, which is being at the top. So I don't know if I'm articulating myself. No, I think, I think, I think, I think the, yes, I agree. I think that's what that is what he's saying, right? Yeah. I think it's interesting that he goes out of his way, Epicurus Mm -hmm. does, to tell you, no, 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 it's still pleasure. Yeah. It's still pain. He's, yeah. It's very important for him right. to maintain those distinctions. Right. And not to say, well, it's not really pleasure because it's gonna, you're going to get addicted to the substance and, yeah, down right. the road. 
Right. So you shouldn't consider it pleasure. No. (laughs) He wants you to be wide-eyed and absolutely clear about what is going on in the moment. In the moment, you're getting pleasure. Right. Yeah. But it's transitory, and it's to be avoided because of the long-term consequences. Yeah. Totally. So that's so, 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 but he, but he's very clear with his terminology, right? Mm. And he wants you to be absolutely objective in evaluating what you're feeling at the moment. Totally. It, it reminds me, Louis C.K. has a joke. He says, drugs are great. They're so great that they'll completely ruin your life, which is kind of like fits in there so nicely, fits in nicely yeah. because he, he isn't saying, well, drugs are bad. You know, drugs are bad. He's like, no, they're they're amazing. They they feel great, but eventually they're going to ruin your life, which is a you know a greater bad than uh, you know not feeling that cessation. Are you so, getting better at that? As I've gotten older, I've gotten a lot better at recognizing those things. At recognizing, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I've actually, and I've actually, uh, and this is an Epicurean influence for the better. Mm. I've taken pleasure. Mm. I've actually taken pleasure in recognizing those moments where I deny myself an immediate pleasure because of the long-term consequence. Mm. And I kind of like am enjoying yeah. those consequences that I am avoiding. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Because you know, you, you, you can already kind of see like, oh, even though this is uncomfortable, I'm going to benefit from it from later. Or I'm going to feel pleasure from it later. And that allows you to kind of feel pleasure. It's, in not, the, it's, not, even, it's not even pleasure. No. It's more like consistent with, it could be, it could be pleasure, but yeah. it, it's more like the pleasure of, and this is where the negative, the negation of Epicurean mm-hmm. thought comes in for me. Whereas I'm, I'm going to enjoy, actively enjoy, yeah. that I'm not going to be stressed mm. down the road yeah. because of this immediate choice. Definitely, definitely. That's becoming more important to me as I get older. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I can relate to that. Uh, there were some other thoughts, but I think it's going to be in, in the next... Well, we, 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 oh, actually, yeah. the next bit of text, it actually goes further to, in saying what you were just said about, okay. about yeah. hedonism. Quote, and we believe that self-sufficiency is a great good, not in order that we might make do with few things under all circumstance, but so that if we do not have a lot, we can make do with few being genuinely convinced that those who least need extravagance enjoy it most and that everything natural is easy to obtain and whatever is groundless is hard to obtain and that simple flavors provide a pleasure equal to that of an extravagant lifestyle when all pain from want is removed. And barley cakes and water provide the highest pleasure when someone in want takes them. Therefore, becoming accustomed to simple, not extravagant ways of life makes one completely healthy, makes man unhesitant in the face of life's necessary duties, puts us in a better condition for the times of extravagance, which occasionally come along and makes us fearless in the face of chance. Uh, So when we say that pleasure is the goal, we do not mean that pleasure of the, uh, what is that, pro- Profligate. Profligate, or the pleasure of consumption. And some believe either from ignorance... As some believe. As some believe, either from ignorance and disagreement or from deliberate misinterpretation, but rather the lack of pain in the body and disturbance in the soul. 
for it is not drinking bouts and continuous partying and enjoying boys and women or consuming fish and other dainties of the of an extravagant table which produce the pleasant life but sober calculation which searches out the reasons for every choice in avoidance and drives out the opinion which are the source of greatest turmoil for men's souls yeah this is great okay I mean, this this tells you. Um, this tells you some of the some of the criticisms that he was dealing with in the time that that right. he, he was active. Pe- people were saying, "Oh, this is just hedonism," and he's saying, "No, it's it's not." Well, and, and what he's saying is, he says either from ignorance and disagreement, or from deliberate misinterpretation. Mm. Yeah. Right, which is interesting, you know, happens still today. People will understand you, but in bad faith, uh, twist your words. So there's probably some haters in that time. That, and yet you see what you know. the word Epicureanism is, 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 uh, conveys today. The meaning has been so yeah. twisted and distorted mm. by Christian thinkers. Yeah. So that the word Epicurean means, you know... Eating fine foods and and uh, engaging right. in those in, in, in culinary pleasures. Yeah, but this is the guy who said, "All I need is, you know, he yeah, just some, ate some some cheese and some water, you know, bread, and that's enough. That was it. That's enough for me. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, and, uh, and and moderation is one of the great hallmarks, mm. virtues of this thought. Yeah, completely at odds with with what." Uh, with how with with how the word has come down to us, totally. Well, and I love what he says too about um, the person who needs extravagance the least is the one who enjoys it the most. I think that's a very profound thought, and that like if you're somebody who actually requires very little in order to be happy and to s- sustain you. When you do indulge in, you know, some caviar or, or whatever your little uh, treat is, like those are the people that are just like really savor that, you know. Yeah, and I think of like um, <laughs> Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So Charlie, Charlie from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he was very poor, and he's this kid, and he only got chocolate bar once a year on his birthday. And because he only got it once a year on his birthday, he would just like take like a day and a half to eat it and just like savor every bite and just let the chocolate melt in his mouth. And he took that pleasure. Like he enjoyed that chocolate bar so much more than the other characters, which were like, you know, the, the really fat kid or like the, the girl who was spoiled, who just got chocolate bars whenever she wanted. Um, so I think that's what he's saying here is that, is that, and also, if you, he's also saying, if you don't need a lot, you're also not afraid of not having it. Mm-hmm. So there's that advantage as well of just like, oh, I'm somebody that's like totally cool with like eating rice and beans and like sleeping on a couch. Like, cool. I'm not actually that afraid of being in a financial state where <laughs> that's all I can afford. Whereas if you're somebody who does enjoy or not even enjoy like require 
um, an extravagant lifestyle, then you're going to be constantly afraid of like your finances or mm. what's happening. Um, I read something or I don't know. I might have read it or somebody said something along the lines of like being an artist and living as an artist is easy if you are content with not having a lot right. and it's hard if you require a lot. Right. So like if you're somebody who like needs to stay in five-star hotels when you travel and you like need to, you know, eat this extravagant food, it's, it's pretty hard to be an artist. But if you're somebody who's like, I'm cool to crash on a couch, I'm cool to like eat ramen every now and then, it's pretty easy. Uh, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but he talks about, Epicurus talks about that too, that like basically the things that we need, that we actually need, are pretty easy to obtain. Yeah. It's all these like extravagances. He, says, he said yeah. that, and that everything natural is easy to obtain. Right. And whatever is groundless is hard to obtain. Which that's another just great idea is that like yeah. it's – and especially, you know, he wrote this a couple thousand years ago, especially nowadays – you know, it's it's really not. Uh, I should watch what I'm saying, but it's really not too difficult to have your basic needs met in terms of like financially, and and I'm talking like basic basic needs met. Whereas he says like the things that are really difficult to obtain are all of these things that we don't really need and that don't actually fulfill us. You know, things like status and like you know, having your own yacht, like that's actually, it's actually hard to obtain those things. Um, but I think he would say you don't actually need them and they're not actually going to provide you happiness. Right. Um, I said a lot there Any the, any, anywhere you want to take it. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're yeah. not going to provide you uh, happiness or necessarily unhappiness. Mm. Right. But he definitely is recommending here a lifestyle he's recommending to become accustomed to simple and not extravagant ways of life yeah so so this so there there are specific things that people should be doing not everyone's gonna take this advice you know it's not gonna be for everyone sure but, yeah but there there is definite wisdom in there you know mm-hmm yeah and he you know practice. becoming accustomed to simple not extravagant ways of life makes one completely healthy makes man unhesitant in the face of life's necessary duties, puts us in a better condition for the times of extravagance which occasionally come along, and makes us fearless in the face of chance. Mm. There are moments in history where people of great status, wealth, had it just taken away from them. Mm. Either you know, nature or war or whatever the situation could have been. Yeah. And Epicurus is saying those people would have been less well off in that situation than those who had been accustomed yeah. to not having that. Totally. And I think there's a stoic practice. I've I've heard I think it's I think it was Seneca. I could be wrong. But it's basically like a stoic practice of like once a month or once a quarter going like a weekend where you subsist on like the simplest of food and like sleep on the floor basically like getting to the like you know 
basically like pretending to be uh poor you know if you're not in order to basically know like hey this isn't so bad and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before in cbt of like we spend all this time just like oh my gosh if uh you know, if I lose my job, my world is going to end. And, you know, we have all this anxiety and fear yeah. around it. Yeah. When usually people, you know, lose their job and they're like, oh, this kind of sucks, but it's actually not that bad. Like, you know, eating rice and beans for a little bit and like, um, yeah, I don't know. So it can be liberating in that sense. And I can speak personally. I know for me, for years, I didn't want to get like a day job. And I had this this thing around like, oh, I'm an artist. Like, I, you know, wouldn't it, it would be so horrible to have to like work at McDonald's or something like that. And then like, I don't work at McDonald's. I work in retail and it's, you know, it's not glamorous, but it is a little liberating too of just like, oh, it's actually not that bad. And this thing that I've spent all this time fearing and worrying about, like I've basically shown myself that like I can... I can, you know, live that lifestyle and it's, it's actually not, it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to worry about it anymore. Um, it's like the, this line in home alone, right? Where he says, uh, uh, he says to the old man, he's like the old man who's afraid to talk to his son. He's like, well, at least you'll know if he'll talk to you and then you won't have to worry about it anymore. (laughs) So it's a similar kind of idea, I think. Yeah, but yeah. did you have to? Did you have to experience that in order to know it? That's a good. That's a good question. Yeah, like, um, I don't know. That maybe goes back to like the if we're able to. You're saying like, like, did I have to work in retail to know that right. work? I could work in retail and be like happy and right. fine. Right. In other words, you had to confront that. Yeah, to get there, or were you able to, or did you rationalize it like that? I don't know. It's a good question. I don't. I like to think there would there be ways of like getting there without having to actually do it. But maybe that's why there is that practice around like like the Seneca's practice around like once a month, uh, you know, living on the simplest affair because it something about like doing it and being like, okay, this actually isn't that bad. Like my, you know, 10 scale of, uh, you know, how many numbers out of 10 of bad, how I thought this was going to be was maybe an eight and I'm doing it now. And it's like, you know, a three or a four. Mm. So like all of that worry I had was unwarranted. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah. We want to keep, he has, um, or he has a, 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 um, he gets into some interesting terminology here. Yeah. Uh, for it is not bad to drinking bad to continuous partying and enjoying boys and women or consuming fish and other dainties of an extravagant table, which produce the pleasant life, but sober calculation, mm. which searches out the reasons for every choice and avoidance and drives out the opinions, which are the source of the greatest turmoil for men's souls. The opinion, any kind of what they would call in CBT an irrational belief. Mm-hmm. The belief that working retail is going to be awful and it's going to yeah you know, you know just catastrophize like that yeah 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 so uh, the the Epicurean would be able to put that into practice 
Like the, you know, the, the wise person mm. in Epicurus would be able to put that into practice without having to experience. Yeah. The, you know, the, that, you know, to be, to be able to understand the, that they're catastrophizing right now. Right. Right. Some, some event that they don't know about. If they put, if they practice this, made this sober calculation, which searches out the reasons for every choice and avoidance, you'd be able to drive out the, the baseless opinions. Yeah. And then he gets into this next pr- passage. Uh, prudence is the principle of all these things and is the greatest good. That is why prudence is a more valuable thing than philosophy. For prudence is the source of all the other virtues, teaching that it is impossible to live pleasantly without living prudently, honorably, unjustly, and impossible to live prudently, honorably, and unjustly without living pleasantly. For the virtues are natural adjuncts of the pleasant life, and the pleasant life is inseparable from them. For who do you believe is better than a man who has pious opinions about the gods, is always fearless about death, has reasoned out the natural goal of life, and understands that the limit of good things is easy to achieve completely and easy to provide, and that the limit of bad things either has a short duration or causes little trouble. So he uses this word, so the word mm. prudence. Yeah. Phronesis in the Greek. This was, this was actually also one of the cardinal virtues in Stoicism. Mm. They use the same word. Yep. Uh, and he's, you really, it seems like Epicurus, as he goes along in this letter, he's becoming um, more... He was always intellectualizing everything, but mm-hmm. he's coming a little more, going a little deeper with that, mm. with something beyond logic, yeah, beyond the syllogism. Mm. Now we're talking about um, a more elevated, refined sense of of thinking, yeah, of, of maybe even a little more long term thinking of what truly is bringing virtue to your life. Right and, and tranquility. He, he's using uh, honor, you know, words like honorably, justly. You know, there's a little more going on here than just yeah, simple like you know, avoiding pain. And and that too is like an interesting idea. So because he's kind of saying there, if you are truly being prudent, you know, being wise, being just, then those decisions will lead to pleasure. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a big, that's a big idea. So if you are not experiencing pleasure, that means that basically you are, uh, you know, not, not living in accordance with one of these other, you know, that decision you made was not just, or it was not prudent. Yeah. He's tying the pleasant life with living virtuously. Yeah, right. It's a new move for him. Yeah, yeah, and it, he kind of, yeah, I don't want to say smuggles virtue in there, but he is... He, he is, He's getting you towards an ethic. Yeah, it's become... Yeah, it's a way of saying, pursue pleasure. You should pursue pleasure, but by pursuing pleasure, you are also... If you are tr- if you're if you're pursuing pleasure in a prudent way, then you are being just and you are being virtuous in all these other ways. 
So it's kind of, you know, if it's true, and we'll, you know, take his word for it, if it's true, then it's kind of convenient in that, like, virtue equals pleasure and pleasure equals virtue. Yeah, if you're doing it right. Yeah. That's where you're going to end up. So so when, so earlier when I spoke about, like, there's something, what was the end result of all this, like, ataraxia business? Yeah. The tranquility. Well, I guess this is this is it. Like there's something, there's something beyond that. Yeah. But it's almost like you don't even have to like consciously go after it. If you're doing it the right way, it's going to happen epiphenomenally. It's just going to mm. come along for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love it. Should we, uh, should we keep plugging away? We're almost there. Where do we? Okay. As to fate. Quote, as to fate introduced by some uh, as the mistress of all. He is scornful, saying rather that some things happen of necessity, others by chance, and others by our own agency, and that he sees that necessity is not answerable to anyone, that chance is unstable, while what occurs by our own agency is autonomous, and that it is to this that praise and blame are attached. For it would be better to follow the stories told about the gods than to be a slave to the fate of the natural philosophers. For the former suggests a hope of escaping bad things by honoring the gods, but the latter involves an inescapable and merciless necessity. And he, meaning the wise man, believes that chance is not a god, as the many think, for nothing is done in a disorderly way by God, nor that it is an uncertain cause. For he does not think that anything good or bad with respect to living blessedly is given by chance to men, although it does provide the starting points of great good and bad things. He thinks it better to be unlucky in a rational way than lucky in a, sense, in a senseless way. For it is better for a good decision not to turn out right in the action than for a bad decision to turn out right because of chance." Practice these and the related precepts day and night by yourself and with a like-minded friend, and you will never be disturbed either when awake or in sleep, and you will live as a god among men. For a man who lives among immortal gods is in no respect like a mere immortal mortal, goods. Uh, excuse me. For a man who lives among immortal goods is in no respect like a mere mortal animal. All right. So he's talking there about he's talking about chance quite a bit in this and we might maybe a more modern term for that might be luck. Um so he's saying it's not true that everything comes down to chance, but it's also not true that you uh kind of are in control of everything that happens to you, you know, and what the ratio is, we're not going to, you know, I don't know, not say it's like 50, 50, but we'll just say there is some chance in life and there is some luck in life. Um, the thing that stood out to me was he's saying, uh, he's saying it's better to make the rational decision and be unlucky than it is to make the wrong decision and to be lucky. Yeah. It's it's kind of uh, counterintuitive to yeah. how I thought Epicurus might go down <laughs> this thing. In yeah. other words, 
if Epicurus is, is really trying to go after a philosophy of life that gets you through the day, mm. he's, you might think he's saying whatever works. And if you're lucky, yeah. be, for, be grateful for, the, for your luck. Mm-hmm. He, doesn't really, he doesn't say that. No. He wants you to practice a right way of living yeah. and make, make those sound choices. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you can get lucky in life and it could work out, but sometimes you can get lucky and it doesn't work out. Yeah. But what's always going to be there is your rational mind and your capacity mm. to make those proper rational choices. Right. Maybe that's what he's concerned about, ultimately, because he, he's totally committed to that's over the long haul. That's what's going to bring you ataraxia. Yeah. Right. And that, like, even though there might be, like, a payoff in the short run for being lucky, like, it's better to, it's better to uh, make the rational decision. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not better to be lucky than good. <laughs> yeah, right. That's it. Yeah. That's funny. Um, cool. Was there anything in this last, uh, this last section or just anything generally well he says practice yeah. these related precepts day and night mm. well that's pretty much covers it right yeah <laughs> yeah by yourself and with like-minded friend which i've done today yeah thank you absolutely <laughs> no, this is... <laughs> and you'll absolutely. never be disturbed either when awake or in sleep and you will live as a god among men hey i'll take that fantastic cool man well thanks for your doing this this was this was a lot of fun a lot of fun yeah great and i uh i bought some donuts from Krispy Kreme. we can Let's we can donuts. we can indulge <laughs> we yes. can indulge a little bit a, 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 little, a little maybe 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 just a quarter of the donut yeah and savored <laughs> right. we'll, we'll take like an hour to eat it thanks for listening to unpacking ideas If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or scroll down and write us a review, give us a rating. All this stuff helps, so thanks for doing that in advance. And if you would like to get in touch with me or to hear about what's coming next on the podcast, please visit unpackingideas.com. And finally, if you would like to hear about what Daniel is up to, uh, check the show notes. If you are listening to this uh, in the future, in the summer of 2022, He is a playwright in New York City and is going to have some performances around town. So check back and I'm going to post where that will be happening. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. I will see you next episode.